Well, welcome to session seven. As we began just last week, our study of uh, God Himself, the, we call theology proper. Theology means the study of God, um, although we apply it to all sections of doctrine as well. So today we're um, tackling something that. Um, when you really think about it, is impossible. I mean, how can you understand the very nature of God? Now, we are finite, we are created, um, and of course, the answer to that question is, the only way we can, and the only um, legitimate way to understand God is for him to reveal himself to us, right? And he has done that in a number of ways, we call uh, both, we've, we've studied both general revelation and special revelation, uh, but it's particularly the special revelation where he, um, he, he describes as much of his being and his nature as we need. And um, I guess even taking into account our ability to understand. Uh, I think it's probably likely that if he were to describe himself fully, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it anyway. I mean, we already struggle with the, the concept of Trinity, right? Uh, we didn't come up with that. He had to reveal that. And it's still a bit of a head-scratcher and many, you know, what, what about this? What about that? Well. Um, we're apparently not meant to understand everything, but what he has described of himself is uh, helpful for us in our relationship with him, in the way we conduct our lives, and the way we approach him in worship and service. So, God's being, the very essence of God, in other words, First of all, we know from Scripture that God is spirit. Uh, we are made in his image. He created us in his image. But that's not referring to his um, any physical appearance, but rather um, his... his um, we're patterned after his intellect, emotion, will. We have those capacities um, made in his image, but also spiritual capacity. Uh, we can enter into relationship with the eternal God because we have sp spiritual capacity, uh, which is important because God himself is spirit. So uh, that first item there, I'm on page 60 in the notes, God is spirit, invisible to man, having no body or parts. Therefore, no man has seen or can see God in his essential being. God can and has manifested himself in various ways at various times. However, these manifestations are not of his essential being. So, um, even the incarnation of Christ, the eternal 
second person of the Trinity, uh, incarnation taking on human flesh, uh, we understand from Scripture is really the supreme way God has uh, communicated himself, not just his instructions, but himself to us. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, right? Well, let's look a little bit about God's being as a spirit. Uh, and, and it may actually help, help me anyway, if I could have several of you read some of these passages that uh, we're going to focus on. So that first one there in Exodus 33, could someone read that for me? But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Exodus 33, 20. Yeah. No man can see me and live. That has a lot to do with his holiness, but as we'll see, it also has to do with his his uh, basic essence being spirit rather than physical. So, uh, Johnny, I saw your hand there. Let's go down to John 1.18. Mm-hmm. Uh, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Yeah, so God the Son has not only explained him, but also given us a, a tangible uh, representation of the character, the essence of the Father. Um, somebody else read the next one, John 4.24. Okay, uh, Diane. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Right. So that's a verse I guess we probably all remember. Uh, in his essence, of course, God is spirit, and our relationship with him is, is a spiritual relationship that governs not just our worship of him, but our walk with him on a daily basis. Uh, he has given us the Holy Spirit to uh, indwell us as believers. We'll talk more about the Holy Spirit specifically uh, in later sessions, but um, it's important to remember. Now, this does raise some other questions, but we'll get to those in a minute, but let's move on to 1 Timothy 1, 17. Can someone take that? Now to the King Eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, so several attributes of God are, are highlighted there. The one I'm particularly interested in in this section is what? Invisible. Yeah. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. <clears throat> He's invisible, not just because he's hiding somewhere. You know, we can be sort of unseen, but he's inherently invisible. He's spirit. Uh, and let's look at the next one there, First Timothy six. Someone take that, Diane. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. And so, again, the portion of that that we're focusing on here is what? Dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him. 
no one has seen or can see. Yeah. So God is spirit. You know, it's it's in man's fallen nature to want to worship things that can be seen. You know, all the idols and and um, and so on. Um, but and you see a lot of that really in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel interacts with uh, the pagans around them. They all have their various gods and so on uh, in some tangible form. Um, actually, the, the, the one I like, the, the encounter I like, is when um, I think the Ark of the Covenant is um, uh, captured, stolen by... May have been the Philistines, yeah. and uh, they they had a sort of a temple for their god, and so they figured this is the representation of Israel's god. He would go in the same place and set him up there. And in the morning, uh, the statue of their god falls down like it's bowing before Yahweh, and so well, that must have been an accident. So they set him up again and. And the next morning, he's also down, and his arms and his legs are cut off and, and whatever, um, sending a message <laughs> that the true God is not one that man has built. It's not in, inherently um, physical, uh, but he's our creator, and he's inherently spiritual. Yes? Could you clarify the difference between the yeah well um, taken together I think what God has been what God has revealed to us in Scripture is that there are two reasons for that. The one is that inherently he's spirit, and uh, he's, he, it's not like he takes a form or, or something like that, other than when he wants to interact with people, and there are examples of theophanies right in the Old Testament where people um, were the Lord himself, uh, came and visited Abraham, for example, and uh, uh, was presumably the one who was with Daniel in the burning furnace, taking on a form um, for a temporary purpose, not incarnation, the way Christ took on human flesh. Um, but anyway, uh, the first thing is that God is inherently spirit. We see that pretty clearly in Scripture, and so... Um, he can't be seen, but the more important thing in in um, uh, a lot of places like with with Moses, the difference is not just that God is spirit, but also that he's perfectly holy. And uh, it's not just seeing his face, it's entering his presence as a sinner would, would um, subject us to immediate... Um, judgment, right? We, we can't. Um, you know, God told 
Moses, even at the burning bush, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. It's all about God's holiness and our, his being separate from sin uh, with tremendous implications. One of which is, you know, you'd have to be zapped. Uh, you, would, you would die. In fact, you remember um, when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of God's presence, and it was on a, on a wagon, I guess, rather than being carried by the poles. And uh, who was it? Isaiah uh, reached out his hand to stabilize it as it hit a bump. And he was a goner. He was fried at that point. Um, it has to do with the holiness of God and not only respecting it, but realizing our incompatibility with his holiness. Um, just like adding on that every single time any prophet has a vision and sees God immediately the reaction is oh I'm a die yeah because I'm sinful and like Isaiah 6 and so on Damn. and that's why we have to seriously question or doubt these near death experiences because people talk about oh I saw Jesus I saw God and they're just so cavalier about it and if John the apostle that Jesus loved fell down as if dead. How, how are they just so nonchalant? Yeah, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think there's both those things going on. He's holy, but also he's in essence spirit. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions there? Yeah. So there's also the beatific vision in which you know, we will see God face to face at the very end. Yeah, so once, um, once we have been glorified as well, we're with him forever, um, we'll have a, 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 a different perspective or ability to come close to him, to worship him, and whatever. What we actually see at that point remains a little bit of a question mark. I, um, like, I don't know if everyone is referring to Christ specifically in a glorified state, or is it referring to, uh, like, the Father, you know, in a different manifestation? Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a little bit, we're, we're kind of, well, in some ways, we're kind of teased a little bit about some of those things that are not fully um, explained by God. Um but we'll find out someday. Yeah. Okay, God is spirit. And so he's created us to have spiritual capacities so that we can have relationship with him. Um, secondly, just in terms of his, his uh, basic essence and his nature, we're going to talk a lot more about other of his attributes in the coming weeks. But this is just his his essence, his being. He's spirit, but also he's immutable. So you know what mutate means, right? To change. The im in front of it means what? It's a negative. Immutable means he doesn't change. God's being and attributes are unchangeable. God does not <coughs> fluctuate, grow, improve, adapt, learn, or evolve. We're so used to change, right? 
the only thing that doesn't change is the fact that nothing stays the same <laughs> in our experience. But God is unchangeable. From eternity past to eternity future, he is the same God. Not only the same God, but unchanging in all respects. So let's look, for example, at the second one there, particularly Psalm 33:11. Someone be able to read that, Bob? The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And let's look at the next one, Isaiah 40, 28. Diane? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Inscrutable meaning what? <coughs> impossible to fully perceive. Yeah, impossible to fully understand and perceive. Yeah, we can understand and perceive some, but when it really comes down to it, we can't put God in a box saying, okay, I got you figured out. <laughs> right? He's inscrutable when it really comes down to it. Um, but the point here is that he doesn't become weary or tired, meaning he doesn't change. These, the, he's without limitations. And he's not uh, different at one point in time than he was at another point in time. In fact, he's outside of time anyway. Right? We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. How about the next one there from Malachi 3? Someone read that? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Yeah, um, you'd have to understand the, the immediate context there as to why he is saying that. But you can see the ready implications of that even for us. If God doesn't change, then what? What's the implication for us? He's faithful even when we aren't. He's faithful. We can depend on him. He's, not, he's faithful, not fickle. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and so when he says something, he promises something, it happens, right? Uh, he's true to himself, he's true to his word. He doesn't change. Uh, let's go to the next one there from Hebrews 6. Yeah. Okay. We, God, desire even more to show to the heirs of the promise and of unchangeableness of his purpose. Interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have, we have strong encouragement. We have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. Yeah, and so there's a lot there, but what aspect of it here is our focus in this context? Unchangeableness, yeah. Unchangeableness, not only of his purpose, as is stated here, but the unchangeableness of 
God himself. His purpose doesn't change because he doesn't change. Right? In fact, that's stated very clearly in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Uh, let's read the last one there, James 1, 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And what are we focusing on here in that verse? No variation. No variation. Um, we are very variable, aren't we? <laughs> um, from one day to the next, from one minute to the next, sometimes we, we waffle, we fluctuate, we vary, uh, we change our minds, and uh, that is not the case with God. Pastor Alan, I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago, uh, we used to live in Utah, so the Mormon faith is obviously very evident there, but how convenient for them that they, they get to change, you know, what prophecy they hear or what have you to, to fit the, the times and the age. And I just think of, you know, what confidence we have in an unchanging God and to live with uh, a faith or a religion that is constantly changing. Um, it gives great despair, I'll tell you, at the end of the day. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's great, great uh, comfort, assurance in knowing that uh, not only what God has said is rock solid, but that He Himself, He doesn't say or do anything contrary to His nature. His nature is truth. Does truth change? Well, you know, you look around us and people think, well, truth is relative and, and uh, what's true for you doesn't necessarily mean it's true for me. And there may be narrow examples of things that are understood to be um, true in a narrow context that may depend on circumstances. Well, God doesn't depend on circumstances. Right? God's nature is unchanging. And so he's often referred to in scripture as things like what? A rock. What's that suggest? I mean, what, what's that convey? Unchangeable. Solid, right? Dependable. Immovable. Um, and, and the kind of rock he's often compared to is not a little pebble, but a huge monolith, Right? That's way beyond uh, our capacity to move or even, you know, the whole thing. It's just a, it's a picture of immutability. And because of immutability, dependability, reliability, so much. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions so far? Yeah, so I think what you're pointing to is that there are multiple aspects of God's character, and we're going to talk about these attributes in the coming weeks. Uh, so he's both loving, a God of love, but also a God of wrath. How do you reconcile those two? Well, for God, 
there's no problem that 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 um, you know when we think God is is the human fallen mind God is love and most people will say well because okay I'm, I'm willing to agree that God is love but they ter- their takeaway from that is therefore he's going to do whatever I think is right and he's going to be kind to me no matter what I do he's loving he's forgiving and those things are true but they misunderstand the balance of his character Right? His love is expressed even in his wrath. His wrath is not independent of his love. The, God's character is always consistent within himself. Even if it's hard for our fallen minds to comprehend. And we see examples of that throughout Scripture. And, and the nation, his dealing with the nation of Israel is a great example of it. Sometimes he's gracious. Um, bending over backwards, other times he's he's um, uh, displaying his legitimate wrath and judgment. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but a good example of the compatibility of God's wrath and his love is what Christ did on the cross. It's just, what does justice mean? God is just in that everything he does is right righteousness and justice are basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to um, like kind of say pretty much the same thing. Uh, just that I feel like what gets lost when people go you know, black or white, either God is love or God is wrath, is they forget that the middle ground is that God is just and his wrath is always an expression of his justice. His love is uh, all... Yeah, his love tempers his justice, but does not contradict his justice. But people right. don't want to admit that they're sinners, so they just don't want to admit that God is just, because that would mean that they are wrong. Therefore, if God is wrath, then he's evil. If God is love, he's never going to do anything bad, and he's not powerful enough to stop bad things. And just forgetting that middle ground just ruins everything. Yeah, yeah. But the important thing is that God is always consistent with his character, and nothing in his character is changing. Even though from our perspective, we may see some paradoxes like black or white, um, you know, uh, wrath or love. It's not either or. It's God in his character is a perfect combination of the two. And none of those attributes is exercised um, in violation of any of his other attributes. It's all one consistent character. Well, no, it's not. From our perspective, what would the just thing be to do to sentence everybody to hell? That would be from our perspective. But again, God being consistent in his character, he's also loving and gracious. And when he saves some, it puts his grace on display. Apart from his putting his grace on display, and apart from his uh, revealing to us in his word and in the person of Christ, his grace, we wouldn't know about his grace. Anyway, everything God does is consistent with his being. Uh, It doesn't change, and uh, we can take great comfort from that. We're not left guessing, right?
but uh, maybe a transfer question with regards to election. Um, in Romans 9, 19, you know, Paul talks about, well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Well, who can resist his will? And then verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Say to this molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Exactly. So that whole chapter and it, yeah. it talks about uh, God. Uh, God indicated that Jacob I loved, but Esau yeah. I hated. Yeah. Before either one of them was born. <laughs> well, that's not fair. Yeah. Well, yeah. for the clay in this case. When when we have a sense of what is fair, but even our sense of what is fair is subject to our fallen minds. God, on the other hand, always does what is right. And he's always consistent with his character. Um, and that's the measure of what is right and fair, ultimately. But that's a great example, Romans 9. Yeah. I think that that should uh, create in us a greater desire to want to go share the gospel with people. And then knowing that they can hear what we're saying, that we can plead with them with you know, utter, just absolute you know, concern and, 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 and knowledge that God can save them and just right. plead on them to call out to Christ and to amen, that their ears can hear what we're saying, that they can cry out to the Lord. Amen. And, yeah, if, if, if God were not um, if God were not the way he has revealed himself in scripture both wrathful and gracious we would be left assuming that the only fair thing he could do is sentence all of us to eternal separation from him and there would be no point of reaching out into the gospel but given that he does, by his grace, save some, and he's made provision for that, then, and he's actually enlisted us in the process of announcing that good news to people. Um, that actually provides a foundation for evangelism. Yeah. Cool. Lots, you see how doctrine has practical applications? When you're ever thinking about a doctrinal issue, think about um, what is the application of that to my life, to the life of the church, and so on. And when we, the more we understand the character of God, it just overflows with applications. And really, all these doctrinal areas. Um, it's not just to get our minds aligned with the truth. That's important. But it's so that we would end up doing the right thing, making wise choices, um, deciding, choosing things that are consistent with God's character and with God's will. Amen. Well, another aspect then on page, one, six, uh, page 61, another aspect of God's essential being is that he's eternal. And we've already alluded to that so far, but specifically, God is eternal in existence, having no beginning and no end. God was not created, 
born or caused, he is eternal. Oh, the eternal I am. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but... Uh, you know, um, I don't know if you remember from math the difference between, well, let me have you give me the term. What's the term for a, I guess I have to call it a line, but it starts at a point and then goes on forever. It's called a ray. Right, like a ray of sun, it starts at a point and then it goes on forever. What is a line that doesn't start at a point, but it goes in, indefinitely in both directions? It's a line. It's a line. <laughs> so technically, a line doesn't start at a point. A ray does. Okay, so. You see where I'm going with this. There's eternity past and eternity future. In that sense, God is a line because he has no beginning and no end. We, our souls, are eternal only in one direction. Right? We have a starting point and go on forever. And that destination is subject to... to um, uh, question on, from you know one person to another, whether it's with God in eternity or separate from God for eternity. But we have a starting point. And our souls are eternal, but only in the sense of going moving forward. God is eternal both from without a beginning and without an end. And so he's often referred to in Scripture as uh, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. But he's even outside of the beginning. He created the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created. So let's look at some verses here. Psalm the third, uh, what fourth one down? Psalm forty-one, thirteen. Can someone take that? You see the point? From everlasting in the past to everlasting in the future. Now, even that, technically, doesn't make sense. Because the nature of God is that he's outside of time. He created time. Um, he created the beginning. And so when we say he's uh, from everlasting to everlasting, um, it's not that he had a beginning at everlasting past because there's no such thing as everlasting past. It was always, you know, um, there was no beginning and there is no end to God. Um, let's go down to Isaiah 40, 28. We read that earlier about uh, his not being weary or so on, but... Uh, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Um, so he's everlasting in the sense of both directions, not just going forward. That's the important point. So let's go down to Isaiah 44. Can someone read that one? 
thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Okay, so again, when he says, I am the first and the last, it's essentially parallel to what we see elsewhere, where he refers to himself as Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last one. Um, the first and the last doesn't mean that he had a beginning, he's first and then everything came. What it means is just a, a way of saying he's before everything, always was before everything, and um, um, he's last in the sense that um, everything follows him. He's, he's Basically, he's outside of time. And I don't know that it's here, but we see in 1 Peter 3 where it says, uh, for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He's, he's, he's not bound by time. He created time. He's not bound by anything. Right. Okay. Uh, let's go to... Well, we did First Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal. Right? That's a part of his essential, his essence, his essential nature. He's eternal. Uh, but I want to emphasize that even though our souls are eternal, they're a ray. They begin at a point in time and go eternally forward. God is eternal in a much broader sense because he never had a beginning even though we do, right? Okay, and then we see this, this um, uh, vision of what's taking place in heaven in, Rome, in Revelation 4, where the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around them and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. What does it mean to say he was, who is, and is to come? He's eternal. Absolutely eternal. No beginning, no end. Right. Okay. Any thoughts, questions so far? Yeah, so um, there, there are several, um, several uses or applications of the concept of firstborn, uh, and pretty much all of them have to do with uh, preeminence. So a it's taken as, as an analogy from the, the, the custom that the first child, the first son particularly, would be the one who would have the, the greater inheritance within the family. He's the preeminent one of the, the children. Uh, but it's used as a describer quite apart from birth order. It's used as a describer for those who are preeminent. It's used of David. He was, what, the seventh in their family, but he's, he's spoken of as 
the firstborn, which basically means he has the preeminence above even his siblings, but everybody else as well, in God's, God's uh, plan for the nation of Israel. Jesus is referred to as a firstborn, having nothing to do with his actual incarnation and birth in, um, in Bethlehem, but everything about his preeminence, his um, having his rightful place ahead of all others. So he was the first, well, he was the first to um, rise from the dead um, in the sense that his death and resurrection made it possible for everybody else. But there were other people who rose from the dead, including Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, right? And uh, several in the Old Testament who the prophets raised. That was temporary. What's referred to here is the, the final resurrection unto eternal life with God, which is possible and uh, founded, really, on the resurrection of Christ. And there is also the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and then we're adopted as children of God. So then the analogy works there, where he's the firstborn, we're the like younger siblings, yeah. not on the same level. Yeah, yeah, he's the preeminent one. Good. So let's move on to the supplemental notes on page sixty-two. Again, we're talking about the essence of God. There's an attribute of God that we don't really touch on all that specifically in our doctrinal statement. Maybe we should correct that. Uh, but the aseity of God is kind of related to what we've been talking about here, but it has a, a, its own nuance of difference. Aseity means self-existence. God is self-existent. He has no cause outside of him. He's Eternal, so that's related to his eternality, right? But he exists. When we think of things that exist, we, they have a beginning, right? Uh, there's cause and effect. Well, there is no cause and effect in terms of God. God has always existed. Uh, having existed from eternity past, God never had a beginning and does not owe his existence to anyone or anything else. Nor does he have any need that anyone or anything else outside of himself can provide. He's totally independent. So his aseity refers to his self-existence and his complete independence, which is pretty central to the nature of God. And so, for example, I... I alluded earlier when we saw from Exodus, God said to Moses, I am who I am. You know, uh, Moses asked him, who should I say has sent me? You know, I'm, I'm hearing you. I see this burning bush and you're asking me to go tell them. Who should I tell them is sending me? And he says, I am who I am. What's he saying? He's saying, I am a God of aseity. I, I have... Um, no beginning, no end, I'm self-existent, uh, totally independent, and compare that with the gods that people dream up in their own minds. Except 
the best day. It's also um, <coughs> like a little bit of a roundabout, but a way of asserting that he is the only God. Because yes. Moses is raised in Egypt. Egypt has a huge pantheon. Mm-hmm. All of the pagan nations around Egypt have pantheons, probably. Um, so they're all. So Moses is used to, you know, this is Hathor, the goddess of the harp. I can't remember what Hathor is, but the goddess of Ra, the god of the sun. There's always a name. There's always a differentiation between that person, that fake person, and other gods. And God is over here saying, "I don't need a name. I don't need a description. I am God. That is it." Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it is interesting. Um, well, that, that name, Yahweh, that he gave him, it, it, it basically means this. I am who I am. I'm self-existent. It's, in other words, I am is his name. right? Uh, I am, I always have been, I always will be. I am the one who is outside of time. Uh, self-existent. Now, for what it's worth, speaking of, of the gods of Egypt at that time, um, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure I heard, I haven't really studied this in depth, but I, my understanding is that the plagues, the ten plagues that were that God thrust on Egypt were each directed to one of the main gods that Egypt had, demonstrating his his superiority over every single one of them. This one God. Um, Fascinating. Okay. Uh, Skipping down to John 8, 58. Someone read that? Um, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him because... But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And why would they have picked up stones to throw at him? Because he was claiming he was God. He was claiming he was God. The I am, who they very much understood, the Jews very much understood, was a reference to being Yahweh. And a couple other places where he does the same thing. I can't remember the references. But. Yeah, several places. And, and at least one of them, it may have been in John 10, uh, he asked, well, you know, why, why would you want to stone me? And they very plainly say, well, it's not because um, uh, uh, of anything other than you claim to be God. <coughs> and so they understood completely what he was saying, right? Uh, let's go to Psalm 90, verse 2. Someone read that? Darina? Before the mountains were born, for you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Yeah. So, uh, he's self-existent. Cause and effect is a very real thing, but it's a real thing for everybody and everything other than God. So he is the cause of, and, and therefore could be creator, right? Um, from everlasting past to everlasting future. Okay. 
Well, we've got a few minutes here to think about some of the questions on page 63. So the first interpretation question, if, if God is spirit, then why is he described in scripture as having eyes, arms, and so on? I think it's so we can relate to God in our, in our turn, how we understand the world to work. Mm-hmm. We can't understand God, so it's an anthropomorphism of the way God can experience what we experience, but not, not the same way. Right. So anthropomorphism, that's a nice good word. What's that mean? Giving human characteristics to non-human things. Right. So the anthro is the, the Greek word for man, mankind, um, and the morphism, that's, that's the, the shape or, or uh, view of things. So, so we're, 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 not we, but God even saying, speaking of himself, or the prophets speaking of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refer to him in ways that we can kind of picture. And the understanding that God is spirit and can't be seen, we understand these things to be anthropomorphisms to help us understand. Um, a very, you know, um, anthropomorphisms are used all the time. Like in cartoons, you've got animals who are speaking and they have arms and they're doing things that people do, but they're actually meant to look like an animal. That's an anthropomorphism in a very trivial sense that we, we because it's it could be humorous, it can be kind of warm and fuzzy for children or, or whatever. Um, but in God's use of the term, it's it's to communicate in a way that we that translates his inscrutable, unknowable essence in a way that we can at least begin to process. But some of these anthropomorphisms, like, uh, what is it, Isaiah 59? What's Isaiah 59? One and, I think, two. Behold, the hand of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Um, Isaiah 59.1. That's just one example. What's he saying? That his, um, his arm is not so short that he cannot save. There's nothing out of his reach. There's nothing out of his capacity to intervene. Right? And his, his ear is not dull so he cannot hear. What's that mean? There's nothing he's not aware of. He's, he's not um, hard of hearing. Uh, he's, um, we'll get into others of his, his uh, attributes in the coming weeks, but um, he is omniscient, right? He, um, nothing takes him by surprise because he's all-knowing. And um, it's... In our way of thinking, processing, to say that God 
understands, we might say, he, he hears us when we pray, right? Uh, it's not that he's processing sound waves. Uh, he knows the heart, even before we verbalize it, right? So he's, he's using these figures of speech, these anthropomorphisms, to help us understand a bit of God's interaction with people in a way that we can kind of process. How it happens, we have no idea. You know, we understand how sound waves work and how our ears process it in some respect. But how God hears us in our thoughts, I have no clue. He hasn't revealed to us, other than he, he knows everything, right? And, and he makes sense out of all that. Yeah. yeah. And, even, and then yeah. considering that God exists outside of time, which means yeah, it's not just the 8 billion people on yeah. earth right now, it's every person who's ever lived. So you begin to get a picture of how awesome it is, but then how helpful it is to kind of visualize it in anthropomorphic terms. Uh, that's the point. Okay. Uh, so if God doesn't change or learn, then what do the following mean? So Amos 7.3 and Jonah 3.10. Uh, go to Jonah, for example. Do you remember Jonah where God uh, called him to um, uh, preach to the Ninevites? And he told them to, he told Noah, or uh, no, Jonah, once he was done with the experience with the fish and he actually got to Nineveh, um, told him to, pre to preach to them that uh, your time is short. You got to do business with God. You got to uh, repent. And, um, and so he did. And then in, uh, let's see. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God related of disaster that he had said he would do to them. Yeah, so verses, I was going back here to starting in verse 7, um, it, it records, I think, what, what Jonah actually preached. And then in verse 10, God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. So what did they do? They repented, just as they were being called to repent. Uh, so God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them. And so some of your translations may actually say changed his mind or repented. Had mercy. Had mercy, maybe. Um, the version I'm looking at actually uses the term relented rather than repented. So his, his, the message he told Jonah to proclaim... Uh, was a warning to people. It was a challenge to people, calling them to repentance. Um, and would God have carried that out if they had not repented? You bet. Right? But they did repent. Now, was God, was God um, changing his mind? What was he doing? He was responding to their repentance. 
old enough for a couple of generations. Yeah, but if he responds to their repentance, then he's, his actions depend on their actions. You see, you pretty easily get into a, a corner here, right? So God is outside of time, and he orchestrates everything. And so you could say that it was the plan all along for him to, I guess, quote, unquote, wait, right? Yes, he would initially threaten them with judgment, but knowing full well that they would repent and that he would allow his graciousness to forgive them. And I think it's, it's more than he knew they would repent. He actually, apparently, induced them to repent. It's very similar to, to us. You know, apart from God's intervention, we wouldn't repent. God had to intervene um, to open our eyes to the truth. Often that comes by the proclamation of his word, and he gives us the um, ability to finally, the light goes off, I understand it now, and to respond to that. You know, scripture makes it clear that um, we are required to exercise faith and repentance, but apart from God's intervention, we wouldn't even have any faith and repentance. Um, and so, yes, we have a role. We need to act upon the faith and repentance that he provides. But um, unless he would induce that in us, we wouldn't get it. Um, and I think the same thing is going on here with the Ninevites. And the reason I think the Ninevites are important in Jonah's context is they were the evil empire of the day. And far be it from you, Lord, to, to accept any of those, Jonah was thinking. That's why he ran. There's no way I'm going to go up there. They're, enemy, they're the evil empire. Um, but God was teaching a lesson there that, that even the evil empire can repent. Now, it's not clear that every single last one of them, I don't think it says, maybe it does, but um, clearly as a whole, they repented and sincerely turned to the Lord, at least at that point in time. It wasn't all that long-lasting, apparently. But, yeah. Now, I was just going to add that because Jonah went and because they repented, they heard, God, they heard the word of God, that means that when God's wrath against them did come, it was when they had full knowledge of what they should have been doing and they chose to go against it. When, when Jonah first came, it sounds like they had no idea that they, how awful they were being. And then they, then they learned, then they did the right thing and followed God's word for a generation or two, and then they turned away from God, and that's when he destroy them. Yeah. And that's that's sort of human nature really to be fickle. But apparently at this point in time their repentance was genuine. It may not have lasted multiple generations, but uh, God relented. He he announced the warning and then um, didn't have to carry through with it. And never intended to, apparently, as we understand the breadth of Scripture and God's character. Never intended to because he knew that he was going to enable them to repent. Although he did make the argument. He did 
follow through on his warning. It just wasn't then. It was a little bit more, it was just a little longer term than Jonah thought it was going to be. Yeah, now versus later. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're running out of time here, but there's some good... Um, the applications, for example, we talked a bit about um, the application of God doesn't change. We can rely on him, right? He's dependable. Uh, his promises, particularly the ones that have not yet been fulfilled, we know they will be. He hasn't forgotten them, right? And because God has always existed, we can have confidence that what he speaks of about the future he would know, because he's outside of time, he's eternal, and what he says about eternity is going to happen, which gives us what? Great hope, right? Excellent. Well, we're going to dive more into uh, other aspects of his character, his uh, nature, and, and so on um, in the next couple of weeks, okay? Let's pray.